it's always very hard, like you said, and especially I think when you're in the weeds doing it, it's it's harder deciding how good your first sort of version should be versus releasing it. So that was the one thing that we struggled with quite a bit, because on the one hand, we're saying that we make the data better, which means our output should be good. On the other hand, the more people test the MVP, the more data we get, the more chances we have to make it better financial services industry in general has seen billions and billions of transactions. And here we are, a tiny company saying we can do better with a small sample. My name is Nare Vardanian. I'm the CEO and co-founder at Entropy. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. Spent six months moonlighting. There's nothing at the back end. Who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know what to do next. took many goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. The company is its people. The teams help each other achieve. Most proud of her team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure was a Yes, we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, Mark. Took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried to begin. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it. Not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today, how Nari Vardanian built the great equalizer in financial data through multi geo, multilingual transaction data. Nari Vardanian has a statistically unlikely story. She grew up in Armenia without electricity during a war. She recalls that her parents gamified the experience, which allowed her to experience it much differently than the hardship it was. Eventually, she went to work for the United Nations, in her words, so she could save the world. Though eventually, she was disillusioned by how slow things moved. It was at that point where she shifted over to tech. Outside of tech, she used to love reading, but now that she has a child, she sticks to audiobooks, and she thoroughly enjoys art, specifically 20th century Russian Jewish artists. When Nari started to travel abroad, she noticed that for some folks, the ability to obtain things in life, like a visa or passport, was a given. Yet others were not enabled to obtain these types of things. She set out to create the Great Equalizer through enriched financial data. This is the creation story of Entropy. What Entropy is, we're essentially building the data infrastructure for financial services. And it means that any product that you're building uh, where you need or require financial data, by financial data, I mean information about what a company or a person is spending their money on. For all the products that you can think of that require that information, you need to use Entropy as an underlying layer. And here's why. The information, the record of where your money spent every time you tap a card, buy something online, is kept within different silos, within banks and other financial institutions. Sometimes you yourself can look at your bank statement and not recognize who the merchant is, what does it say, and not remember that you went and bought something. And because of this, it's very hard to work with this data, especially at scale. If we think about how is this data used today, every single product that really touches our lives, from mortgages to car loans to renting apartments and credit scores, payments, 
remittances. Every single crucial financial product requires this information, this data. And we're creating a unified layer that will standardize, clean, enrich, categorize this information for the world to use. Internally, we call it the money graph as well. I grew up in a place, I told you, where a lot of things weren't like anywhere else and there was a lot of hardship. And then when I traveled and started living in Europe and abroad, I realized that, you know, for some people, things are given, like getting a visa, you just don't need them if you have the right passport for most countries, or being able to rent an apartment, get a SIM card for your phone, get a loan to start a business. But then for others, it's way more complicated. They're basically queuing outside a room where everybody else is already born. I like to bring that analogy. Entropy was born out of this idea that financial data is one of the biggest equalizers. And if we want to change things from the ground up, we have to make sure that that building block is ready to use, especially because there's so many builders in the world today and building product is being democratized. There will be way more in the future. I think there's less than 1% of the world population that can code today, and that's massively growing. With the advances of AI, no code, everything else that's out there, that's so fascinating. Let's dive into the MVP. Tell me about that first product you built. How long did it take you to build? And what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? We were building a product that had a massive challenge. We needed to train models that would read and understand financial transactions like a human would. Like I said, clean, categorize, enrich. But we'd never really seen financial transactions beyond our own at scale. Neither had our models So we had a big challenge for the MVP. Where do we get the data? Financial data is not publicly available. It's very sensitive. Most of the stuff that you can buy is very expensive and anonymized and not useful. So we actually decided to create a consumer product, essentially a website where people would link their bank histories and we would provide them value whenever they wouldn't recognize a transaction and they had a question about it, whether it was fraudulent or a wrong charge, we would manually go and answer those questions. So it was a simple Q&A thing. When we did that, uh, people obviously consent that that information is being shared and then you can use that to provide them products and services. We asked them specifically if we could use this to do a better job at understanding what they're doing with their money. And that's how we got our first data set and trained an MVP, which was a model that would take in financial data from one of the core U.S. aggregators, Plat, and clean, categorize, and return information about who the merchant is in the transaction and what the transaction is about. And that's how we got started. There was 20,000 transactions that we had access to with user consent. And had open banking, Plaid, Finicity, all this sort of bank connections not existed before, we would never be able to do what we did and build an MVP. So there's a lot of work and infrastructure that's been built before to make this possible. Okay, so let's stay on the MVP for a minute. With any MVP, you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs about how you build that MVP. You talked about some of them at a high level, but dive into to one or two of them of you know, some of the bigger decisions and trade-offs you had to make around technical debt or approach or feature cut and how you coped with those decisions. It's always very hard, like you said, and especially I think when you're in the weeds doing it, it's, it's harder deciding how good your first sort of version should be versus releasing it. So that was the one thing that we struggled with quite a bit, because on the one hand, we're saying that we make the data better, which means our output should be good. 
On the other hand, the more people test the MVP, the more data we get, the more chances we have to make it better. Our competitors or financial services industry in general has seen billions and billions of transactions. And here we are, a tiny company saying we can do better with a small sample because we have the better technology and we have a huge approach and so on. I think it took a lot of back and forth between myself and my co-founder and CTO saying, hey, we should release something that is maybe slightly better than what they're seeing as a raw output on their bank statements. There will be a lot of mismatches and a lot of things will return incorrectly, but people will use it and then we'll take it from there and we'll see how we build the next versions. So that was the first sort of trade-off. Do we release something that's not great, but then it gets used and becomes better because of the data and the effect of that? And we decided yes. It was painful because we were in a lucky position and we had a lot of demand and there were so many cool names that were testing the product and we knew that the results aren't going to be what we want them to be. It was giving us an opportunity to build towards the version that would work. Again, there's this magic version. You return every possible piece of information about this transaction or about this account holder versus you return the most critical piece of information. And you do that quickly. And again, we went for do it quickly, return the merchant information and the label, start very simple, see how useful that is, and then try to build up on that. Afterwards, when people started using it, there were so many feature requests of what they wanted to be returned, what the format should be, what connections we should work with. Financial services today is a lot of Lego pieces built together. So if you're building a data layer on top, you should be very selective and thoughtful about what you're integrating with, what do you want to cover, what's important, what's not. The second phase of it was we were just drowning in different feature requests, different use cases, directions we could go. It sounds like a good problem to have, but actually not that much because everything is an opportunity cost and lack of focus is tough. You want to do everything. You want to be horizontal. You want to serve every customer, but it's impossible. So you got your MVP. It's working. You've got it to a point where you're seeing some progress. How did you progress the product from there and mature it? And I think to wrap that in a box a little bit, what I'm looking for is how did you build your roadmap and how do you go about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build for Entropy? We had an approach here that was quite orthogonal to what most people were doing in the space. And we thought this is why this problem hasn't been solved. Because although we wanted to serve certain customers and have focus, we also knew that we want to build the most general sort of financial data understanding possible. Um, And if you think about financial transaction, you need close to a commonsensical understanding of the world, right? You need to read it, you need to understand the description, and then you assign a label saying this is groceries and this is somebody's salary and this is rent and this is income and so on. It's very hard to do generally. You can do it for one specific field or area, one specific domain, like for example, accounting and chart of accounts or a very narrow demographic of people. This is uh, transactions for creators on YouTube. You can do that very well with very high accuracy, but it's very hard to do across the board. And we wanted to build something that was any source of data, any location, 
any geography. That was our end goal because we thought that's what's most valuable and horizontally can power today's product and future product. To be able to do that, we were constantly balancing building for our customers today, trying to be focused on the features they're requesting versus also, for example, starting early on to take transactions from Latin America and work with some partners there so we could build multilingual models. And that was a big bet. Everybody's focused on one geography because that's what makes sense. We didn't do that. We went global very quickly. And the product, actually, even our U.S. product became better because we trained models that parsed different languages, saw diverse data, and got better at the long tail, even in the United States. And, and since then, we've made a lot of decisions that are not very logical when you think about them. For instance, if you can mitigate mistakes by building a lot of rules, then you should do that because then your customers will sign and pay you money. It doesn't matter that those rules work only for very specific cases and kill your generality. Again, we didn't do that, which means our product initially had a ton of false positives and we had to mitigate it with our customers and continue to retrain the models to make sure the intelligence was improving versus we were applying some patches to local problems. So, okay, let's switch to team then. So how did you go about building your team? And and I'm curious, what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? It is the hardest thing to get right. Uh, everything. People think fundraising is right, having the right idea, market, timing. I think having the right people is the toughest thing. We had a very high standard technically because what we were doing wasn't really trivial and a lot of ways hadn't been done before. And there was a lot of intellectual curiosity that needed to be involved and a lot of skill. We definitely had a very high bar there, but also Ilya and I both knew that we need people who are very smart, work very hard, but don't take themselves seriously. And sometimes this can be taken to an extreme, but that cultural element really made it possible to bring a group of people together that just love hanging out and building things and not sleeping at night sometimes because there's a lot to do. We also started through the pandemic, so a lot of the people that we hired, we couldn't meet. Our first employee was in France, and uh, Chaddy, he's still with us. He's a brilliant machine learning engineer from NVIDIA. He decided to take a leap and join a two-person startup. And we had to go through the hurdles of hiring somebody in France, which I keep telling him we wouldn't do for anybody else but him. <laughs> hiring in France, I mean, some regulations and tax legislation is just crazy, which is such a big problem because there's amazing talent everywhere. The whole team is distributed. We have engineers in Europe, in the US, and we do quarterly offsites where we get together and work on product, do whiteboarding. We had to do it because of the pandemic. And right now we're trying to set up local offices so people could meet because everybody wants that. And I think we're graduating into a more of a hybrid model as a team. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I'm never happy about how things are. So when I think about things, I think about things that don't work and it's very hard to focus on things that do, which I should do more. It's definitely the people we have at the company and the team. Like I said, it, it sounds cliche, but very intelligent people who could be doing anything else in the world have so many opportunities and they choose to spend their time on a dream and a vision that we've put together. And they do it relentlessly with a lot of focus, dedication. Very, very proud of that. 
the core group as well. Like I said, we've met, made many mistakes and we've had people who we let go or people who left themselves. But the core team is uh, something that keeps the company together growing and also what makes our product different because of the hours spent, the approach, the creativity, the skill, also the humility. I think it takes a lot of humility to do things that don't work and continue doing them to a point that they start working. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. One of the biggest mistakes that I still uh, make is not reacting to a wrong fit from a hiring perspective fast enough. That's cost us a lot of time and effort and emotion. It's brutal. I know there's a lot of layoffs on the market and I really feel for people who are let go. It's, it's a tough situation, but what I'm talking about is different. It's, it's when you hire people for a job, you think they're a fit very quickly, you feel they're not, but then you continue dragging the conversation because it's a hard conversation to have and you want to make everything work. It's extremely costly. Um, so this is something that I really want to improve. We've established feedback sessions, which are one-on-ones every week. We try to be as honest as possible, and they're bi-directional. And just constantly asking ourselves questions on both sides. You know, why does this make sense? Why does it make sense to continue working together? What are we accomplishing? What is the other person's goal? What is my goal if I'm managing them? So that we're on top of the situation and we're sure that things are working. Because when they don't, it's very costly. We've made a lot of other mistakes and, like I said, continue making. I fundraised in a market that was very frothy and I've done it and walked into it super blasé, thinking we have this in our pocket. And then things changed extremely quickly. And that fundraising cost the company, the product and myself a ton of time just because I wasn't well prepared and I thought it was going to be easy. It turns out nothing is easy and being overprepared matters. It's always good. And on the product side, I mean, it's, we've prioritized a lot of small customers. We're happy because we learned, but sometimes we really miscalculated our pace of learning and the improvement of the product versus the impact it was having on the whole company, the time it was taking and how unique those cases and features were versus what we needed to do as a whole. This will be fun to ask. So what does the future look like for your product and for the team? We just landed in a really exciting space from all perspectives. When we started building, I think it was still a little bit early because the world was excited about financial data being available for builders, but it hadn't quite caught on yet about how good the quality needs to be and that it wasn't there. Right now, um, we are in a world where A, um, financial data seems like is going to be a part of not just every financial product, but also other software companies and products. As we're seeing, even Shopify's, DoorDash's, Apple's of the world are becoming, in a way, financial services companies or starting to embed financial services, which means the impact of this data is going to be way beyond the traditional banks or how we used to think about financial services. And that's happened very rapidly. Another massive thing that is super important for us as a company is that if before the only people who could really use this data and access it were 
engineers, data scientists, and you needed that skill to be able to make the most of the data, even do like simple queries and answer questions about your customers looking at this information. Right now, there's a lot of capability with foundational language models and some of the advances in that field to allow anybody to use our core and query it, build models from it, do forecasts, build recommendation engines, do whatever else, whereas before you just needed engineering skills. And like I said today, although there's a lot of people that are getting into engineering, however, there's nearly not enough of them and there should be more. And I think there's going to be a big wave of people who will be given more tools to, to be able to leverage the ability to code without necessarily getting super deep into programming. And they can be users of our data. Any knowledge worker powered by numbers and financial information is a 10x knowledge worker, whether it is in marketing, a product, investment, finance, underwriting, and so on and so forth. Nari, let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something you look up to and why. I consume a lot of information and sometimes way too much. I need to have the discipline of stopping and distilling of what's coming from the outside and then, you know, what is real, what I think is real, what is important to me and block the noise, but also take the learnings from all the information that I consume. So through the years, I've become better and better at this. And one of the people who really helps is actually my co-founder, who I started the company with. He is the opposite of me. He's hyper-focused, very narrowly focused at times. He can do one task at a time, and he will get it done no matter what. He's played a major role in how I think about things as well. And he is like the opposite mirror that I can look into and then adjust and improve. Although sometimes it's tough because you have to see your vices and accept them. And then I've had a baby 18 months ago while I was fundraising for our A round and running the company at the same time. It was a very weird and interesting experience. And today, just seeing a new human growing up, learning about the world and the way they do things gives me a lot of perspective. Probably anybody who has kids can relate to this. And even if you don't, it's commonly repeated, but it's fascinating to go through that experience and apply it to other things. I've suddenly discovered this expanded sort of capacity, expanded mindset, expanded patience for things, which I didn't have before. That really influences the way I work. Well, last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Well, first of all, I'd, I love people who, who build. So I'd be excited to see what they've built. I think it's really important if you've built something you're very excited about to also be extremely open to what people are actually saying versus what you want to hear. This is hard. You have to balance, you know, your dream and things that you just have to be delusional about in order to make something happen. Otherwise, it just doesn't happen. But at the same time, being able to hear what people are saying and, and what they need and what matters to them. Often, the vision we have about the world 
is true. However, it can be biased in so many different ways. And to distill that into an actual product, you need to be able to listen. I still find it hard myself because I have so many assumptions and just having the courage to question them all the time without getting pessimistic and giving up is tough. You need to build up a character and habit to do that. So I would definitely recommend somebody to start building up the user stories and to treat anything and any person and any conversation that they come across as a user story and to use those stories to create the bigger narrative that they want to see. That's fantastic advice. Well, Nari, thank you for being on the show today. And thank you for telling the creation story of Entropy. Again, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.